You're listening to the Sill Podcast Perspectives on Art and Technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 26 Marriage of Minds From IQ to AI. It's good water. Who makes that water? Hockley? <laughs> Hockley Valley Coffee? Does Hockley Valley Coffee make that water? No, it's but the, it's the good water that makes Hockley Valley makes, Coffee. Ah, uh, see? There you have it. There you have we it. We use alkaline water. Uh-huh. Not mm. alcoholic water. Not alcoholic alkaline. water. No, Al- alkaline water. And it makes better coffee, actually. Yeah? Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, at least it does for our taste. How many cups of coffee would you say you have a day of Hockley Valley? Generally speaking, one hmm. and sometimes two. That's pretty modest. I have about 25, sometimes 30, 35, <laughs> depending on how much work I have to do and how alert I want to feel. Okay. Well, <laughs> coffee to keep your pupils permanently dilated. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when you buy 500 grams or a oh, pound, it's, it, it, that's pennies, having 35 cups, so, you know, pennies per cup. Yeah. Coffee is a lot less expensive at home than it is in a cafe, obviously. That's but right. I don't think people realize how much less. Oh, how much less is it? <laughs> ah, typically, it's about five, six times more expensive at a cafe than it is at home. Really? Mm-hmm. No. Seriously. That's pretty cool. Of course, no one makes it or serves you. It. And that's yeah. the problem, you see. I'd rather yeah. be served hand and foot. Which, which brings us to the... Um, anyway, I, I have no idea where we are now. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, Actually, what you were going to say is interesting, which brings us to the topic at hand. Well, I was going to talk about artificial intelligence. That's the topic uh, we were, at we were, hand. But we were talking about IQ to AI. That's right. IQ, intelligence quotient, right. to AI, artificial, artificial intelligence. intelligence. Would you say in the 40s, 50s, became kind of in vogue to do the IQ test and get a numerical value on your so-called intelligence? Interesting to know what it was exactly that they were measuring and how it could even be measurable. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But I think it's a combination of measuring pattern recognition abilities, you know, numerical facility. Certain logic. uh, Yeah, cognitive functions, essentially. Mm -hmm. Basic cognitive functions and how adapted they are to problem solving. Like if you see a lightning bolt, it's likely going to storm. Yeah, or it could be the Tampa Bay Lightning hockey team. One can't be too sure. Right, and that's how you figure out how intelligent you are. Yeah. That you can distinguish the two. Well, actually, there's more truth in that tongue-in-cheek, but there's more truth in it than I think we know. Right. In that we're going to have a discussion about intelligence, and one of the aspects I'd like to bring up in terms of what makes an intelligent person intelligent is... A certain kind of sense of humor and playfulness, but we'll get to that. That's actually interesting to yeah. me, Harry. I'm curious to hear that part. Yeah. So tell now, artificial intelligence. So uh, artificial intelligence was founded as an academic discipline back in the 1956. Mm-hmm. People seem to think that it's a modern day thing, but it's been going on for over 60 years. Oh, beyond in science fiction terms, beyond that. But beyond that, on, right. Yeah. But in practical application in terms of studies, universities, organizations taking it on, it's been about 60 years. Right. The interesting thing about those 60 years is that artificial intelligence wanes in popularity. It goes into kind of these segments of interest 
and then sort of dies off. And part of the reason for that is that it's a very, very difficult thing to get under wraps because there are so many variables and so many different opinions on how far we can take it and how fast we can get it going. Yeah. That it doesn't always uh, generate the kind of support that the believers would like it to have. It's funny how the arts are often kind of in advance of science and technology in the old Flash Gordon films, Mm -hmm. rockets into space, robots, intelligent automation that was all there in science fiction in books and in film and in television series well before these manifestations that we're talking about now came into being. Which is generally the case with a lot of things in film because there was a Spielberg film called AI came out, uh, what, about 15 years ago? That's right. The Musks, the Gates Mm. of the world who are talking about it more frequently because it's in line with a lot of the technologies that we already have, which are a form of artificial intelligence, i.e. Google is probably the most well-known one. Mm Mm-hmm. But this is a form of AI that is what they call almost entry level. It is not the more sophisticated AI that they're seeking to work on, which would involve the human psyche, the human intuition, the human emotion part of the intelligence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the we've seen with the the latest edition of AlphaGo and the, the chess equivalent that beat the top chess programming computer in the world in a match recently, mm-hmm. that computationally we've reached almost the saturation point for how quickly computers can work, let's say. So in terms of matching the cognitive functions of the human brain, computers are fast approaching that point. Whether that's intelligent or intelligence or not, is another question altogether, which I think we have to talk about. A recent article that I had read uh, suggested that artificial intelligence today is properly known as narrow AI. Yeah. Another word for narrow would be weak, and that it's designed to perform a narrow task, for example, facial recognition or internet searches or only driving a car, Mm. right? Which we already know is being worked on and exists. We have facial recognition with the most recent uh, smartphones. We have Google, which we know, and so on. However, the long-term goal of many researchers is to create what they call general or strong AI. And while the narrow one only outperforms humans at whatever specific task, like playing chess or solving equations, whereas the larger one would outperform humans at nearly every cognitive task. Yeah, that's very interesting. I was talking to my wife yesterday about her job uh, in the IT world, world of communications. Mm. And I said, well, you know, who knows, in 20 years, um, artificial intelligence could take over your job. And she said, no, I don't think so. What do you mean? And she said just that, that artificial intelligence could be good at very specific, focused problem solving. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to general ideas and creative solutions that are overarching and bigger than the specific issue, human beings still do that much better and will be doing that much better into the 
you know, foreseeable future. So she's not concerned right. about that. So it's very interesting whether we'll get to that place is a very good question. My issue with it is that they're calling it intelligence, artificial intelligence even so. I don't feel that the word intelligence is maybe the best word okay. for what is happening. Because when you think about intelligence, intelligence goes beyond being able to solve problems. It's not just computational is what you're saying. Yeah, quickly, solving quickly, efficiently, what have you. Mm -hmm. What the computer brings to the mix is a certain level of efficiency and speed, Mm -hmm. okay? But there are other elements involved, which we haven't really seen that much of, which is a sense of playfulness. And I'm going to refer to my wife again. She's a very intelligent person, my wife, (laughs) speaking of intelligence. Yeah. And she said to me that intelligence is messy, I thought, That's wow, an interesting term. That's profound. Yeah. Intelligence yeah. is messy. It allows for playfulness, for mistakes, for serendipity, mm-hmm. randomness to come in and the human then mind can grapple with that and come up with creative solutions that they wouldn't have had before mm-hmm. had there hadn't been this playfulness built in. Mm-hmm. And I don't see where computers and automation can ever be playful. Uh, so maybe uh, the uh, intuition, intuition. So a computing system which is based on computational process or process of gathering data and then surmising something based on that data. What you're saying is it may lack the ability to have that spontaneity or change of course. Right, right. And it's a narrowing. It's all about narrowing. It seems to me in terms of artificial intelligence, you're narrowing the the focus to certain aspects of cognition that humans have, and you're applying it through computer algorithms and programming and that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. and manifesting results. And that's all great and all good. But to me, that's just likening the car to the horse. The car wasn't advanced on the horse. It could go faster. It was a bit more complicated. But a car is simply an elaborate horse. Right. (laughs) If you think about it. Yeah. Uh, more stamina, greater range, yeah. increased speeds, carrying more loads. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that you can talk to it and there's GPS and all that shit. I mean, that's all bells and whistles, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't call it intelligence per se. Well, now, here's the, well, here's when you do get to the part of intelligence. Sorry, Eric. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, the intelligence part brings in the issue of safety. Right. Because a lot of the concerns with progressing in this field are the safety issues. If I create something to do something... Is it going to do something in a positive fashion or a negative fashion? Is it going to bake me a cake or create a high-performance weapon to kill people? Right. Well, let's look at, for example, self-driving cars Mm -hmm. that are now on the horizon, it seems, and they're testing them as we speak. That moral question of if there is a child there on the one side of the lane and uh, an old man on the other side of the lane and the car has no choice but to go Mm. through either one, which does it choose? Mm -hmm. These kinds of things are very muddy and very gray when it comes to self-driving vehicles. Mm -hmm. So yeah, (laughs) safety, morality, ethics, these things are very, very hard to tease apart and dissect and then put together algorithmically to create an artificially intelligent machine. Right. That's why I don't think it's in the near future, frankly. I think it's still quite a ways away. Artificial intelligence implies consciousness in the machine, okay? Right. Awake, 
becoming awake to itself, to the world. Mm -hmm. And consciousness is not something that's easily defined. We barely know what it is ourselves, having lived within it and being of it as human beings. So to transfer that to a machine is really an act of magic, if you think about it. Very strange. When I was talking to you about that example of creating something and then becoming something else, I wanted to maybe use a better illustration. Yeah. So, for example, something I read where you want to get to the airport really quickly. So you program your vehicle to take you to the airport in the quickest way possible. (laughs) The vehicle does that. (laughs) And that is its primary objective. So it doesn't So it drives through fields, through houses. Chased by helicopters. Uh, You could be vomiting in the car. You could be literally doing any number of things, but it won't recognize those things. In other words, it's not going to slow down if you start feeling ill. Its purpose is to get you there as fast as possible. Yeah, but what about your override, your you know well, your stop function? Stop! You know, right. doesn't it respond to that? Well, these are all the particular details that one has to look at in creating these artificial intelligent systems. Right. You have to really fine tune, and the human brain, what you were talking about, the playfulness, the emotional, the intuition, all that. If you're driving in a car and you're driving at a certain speed and you don't feel well, you will just automatically slow down Mm -hmm. because you don't feel well. Right. Uh, Your brain is automatically doing that. But if you program something to go at a certain speed, it's not going to necessarily recognize that you're not feeling well. And you may be so ill that you can't get to that override button. Yeah. So these are the kinds of concerns that the community building these systems really has, you know, the safety and the destructive factor. Now, the futurists out there would probably respond by saying something like, there will be a time when we will be so symbiotically connected to our machines that the machine will sense our discomfort and our pending illness, Mm -hmm. and it will respond by slowing down or asking a question, should I slow down, or whatever, that it will be so synergistic that you won't have to give a command to stop. The equipment will already know. And that's the second level that I discussed earlier, where you're elevating it to another level. This is way beyond Google searches and facial recognition. Yeah, we're already partly there through implants, GPSs under the skin, titanium hips, prosthesis. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of interconnectivity already between the physical body, the human body, and the machine world. Mm-hmm. That And there's a symbiotic relationship going on there, which can only deepen as time goes on. There's a Puerto Rico AI conference that was held in 2015. Mm-hmm. And it said the average answer or median answer was that we would have AI by the year 2045. The second level that I was talking about early on. They believe, though, that most people on record think that superhuman AI is still decades away. But they argue that as long as we're not 100% sure, that it won't happen this century. (laughs) So many of the safety problems associated with human-level AI may take decades to resolve or solve. It's all true, I think. I mean, I heard a discussion the other day on the radio about AI. Yeah. And it was a science fiction writer and a science writer and a futurist talking. Mm -hmm. And they talked about all the things we've just talked about and what you've just mentioned. And then the thought occurred to me after the end of the interview, 
that at no point did they talk about the evolution of human consciousness on its own to higher levels of mm. awareness and capability. It's like, well, we've reached the pinnacle, and now it's up to the machines to take us further. Right. You know, we've just stopped thinking that the human brain, the mind, consciousness could somehow evolve more deeply, more profoundly mm -hmm. to other levels such that there comes a point where we don't need the mediator of the machine at all. In certain cases, we can just simply do it ourselves. There's a thought that is not really discussed very much. That's a great thought because as you recall growing up, and I don't know in what decade I heard it, but this discussion on the fact that we use such a small percentage of our brain. Yes. Um, even Albert Einstein, who everybody knows, apparently was only using like 5% of his brain capacity. Yeah, the rest of it was being used to grow his hair. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which was monumental, that's, as we know. That's right, that's right. <laughs> but that's a great point, Harry, because I, I hadn't thought about it until you said it. And, and also, my brain immediately went to, not only is that a good point, but it brings it back to why the focus on AI knowing what you just said, that mm. we could develop our brains to do so much more. The question is... The economic one. Yeah. It comes back to dollars and cents. AI, when you apply it to machines, mass production, functionality, you're removing people in the function of creating things or doing things, yeah. which means you're using fewer resources to produce more, which means more profits and so on. And bigger job losses. Apparently, uh, seven and a half million Canadians should be losing their jobs over the next, I don't know, 20 years or something mm -hmm. because of AI. Mm -hmm. Now, you can look at that two ways, though, right? You can look at it as extremely negative in the sense that people don't have jobs. However, if there is a transformation in the way we do things, we could all maybe be working less and spending a lot more time on development and enjoyment of things, assuming that we spread that wealth yeah, and it would also perhaps mean a change in the way currency itself works. If I don't have to go to work and the employer doesn't have to send me a check or mm -hmm. transfer currency in the normal way, then how do I live? How do I survive? How do we carry on the economy? I think it would mean the economy might change as well. Mm -hmm. But here's the other element of this to do with the human psyche, the human ego, Part of the reason I think a lot of the emphasis is on AI and not on human development and the expansion of human consciousness is that the, the state, the government, the systems in place mm -hmm. would not be happy if individual human beings suddenly began to explore more deeply again mm -hmm. the human psyche and the possibilities of consciousness, because that would mean dissolving boundaries, finding new paradigms of living and uh, sharing and all this other stuff, which always makes the powers that be shake. Sure, because you lose central command. Exactly. So thus the emphasis more on technology than on the human side of development. Absolutely. Right? I agree with that. Actually, that's a valid point. I think we can talk about the technical things, which we have some kind of limited knowledge on because we're not privy to all the information that's going on. We don't know all the technological advancements that are being made. We only hear what's in the press, right? right. We don't know what's going on behind closed doors. So maybe it would be a good idea to discuss the things that you just brought up, what AI represents in terms of the human condition. Yeah. 
I mean, if AI simply means taking over aspects of human consciousness that we would naturally evolve and develop and grow through the exercise of, Mm -hmm. then that's not a good thing, I don't think. If it's just a matter of getting lazy, we're too lazy to pick up the axe and chop the wood, and there's a machine that'll do it for us, okay, good, right? But that's a kind of laziness that can be built in to the human condition. I'm not sure that's the most efficacious thing we can do. Unless you can replace that function with an equal or better function. For example, if you're not out chopping wood, yeah. but you're out writing a book. About will... chopping wood? <laughs> That's not the, it's not an equivalent, unfortunately. It just well, not necessarily about chopping wood, but you're using your time and energy. You're applying it to other things so that you're not doing the mundane tasks. Yeah, but maybe I like chopping wood. And my coworker or my parent says, forget about chopping wood. It's a waste of time. The machine can do it in three seconds. Mm-hmm. Go and do something else. But I derive fulfillment from that. I derive pleasure and meaning Mm -hmm. uh, and contact with the natural world. But no, the machines are all doing that for us now. And I'm raised in a society where that just is not encouraged anymore. I've lost something in that mix, right? Yeah. So this is my concern from the artistic side of things. Now, artists, of course, are using technology and relatively smart technology to help in some ways design their artwork. Mm -hmm. There are programs that can produce random phrases and poetic ideas. There are programs to help with uh, novel writing in terms of how to organize your novels, etc. So there are some elements of help there. But thankfully, the artist is still 99% responsible for the work that is produced. Let me just quote you this paragraph from a recent piece on AI, which I think sums up what I was saying. Okay. The concern about advanced AI isn't malevolence, but competence. A super intelligent AI will be extremely good at accomplishing its goals. And if those goals aren't aligned with ours, we have a problem. You're probably not an evil ant hater who steps on ants out of malice. But if you're in charge of a hydroelectric green energy project, and there's an anthill in the region to be flooded, Too bad for the ants. A key goal of AI safety research is to never place humanity in the position of those ants. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's very good. Yeah, I like that. But how do you set up a kind of dynamic and an approach that results in that ethic that this quote is representing? That's the challenge. Yes. Right? And that's been our challenge with most technological things. Yes, Yes, it's, all along. It's the ethical and the damage to the human psyche or the human way of doing things, or like you mentioned about the woodcutting, removing things that you don't necessarily want to be removed. Yeah. Uh, the tendency to be destructive will diminish automatically if we're in tune and respect one another, right? I hope so. I can't even imagine what a world would be like with AI in it fully functional. Because if AI is what people say it is, it's like having a new set of human beings on the planet that can make choices, that can feel, that can empathize, etc., etc. But I've yet to see a program that can actually empathize or show compassion as an attribute. I think a lot of the fear that surrounds AI for the average person who's not privy or doesn't concern themselves with that, but they concern themselves with the immediate, which is I'm losing my job, or I don't have a place to go to anymore. 
They're not thinking probably beyond that. Whereas the people who are creating and doing all these things, they're thinking way beyond that. They're gathering information on your every step, on what you do, when you sleep, what you buy, and so on. So in your own small way, you have to understand that things are going to be shaped by what the masses want. Mm-hmm. The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com.